Welcome to this episode of Helix and Gene Medical Podcast Wellness Show. I'm your host, as always, Sam Baluch. And today, again, we have our Director of Functional Medicine, Lori Graham, here. Today, we have a very, very special guest, Dr. Joel Evans. Um, he's a board-certified OBGYN, Director of the Center of Functional Medicine in Stanford, Connecticut. He serves as a Director of Curriculum for the Development of the Functional Medicine Coaching Academy. Um, and uh, he is the chief medical officer for Health Point Solutions, which specializes in the use of artificial intelligence in medicine. Um, <clears throat> Dr. Joel Evans has been honored to speak at the UN on <clears throat> prenatal origins, um, as well as serve on the United Nations <clears throat> Rep of Chief of Medical Officer for OMAEP. It's a World Organization of Prenatal Education Associates. And he's on the advisory board for Toolbox Genomics, the company that's deeply committed to the appropriate use of genetic testing. And he is also the senior medical faculty advisor for the Institute of Functional Medicine and has been teaching for their hormone module since 2011. And also, this is something that I love, he's the medical director of KBMO Diagnostics, a company that specializes in identifying foods that cause inflammation. So, Dr. Joel Evans, wow, what an introduction. Welcome to our show. It is an honor to have you here. And uh, Dr. Joel, can you just give us a little background about yourself and about how you got to all of these incredible accomplishments and what was the path that led you here first? Well, thank you. And, and thank you for allowing me to go and tell my story because really I think that what turned me into really understanding and knowing that I needed to practice in a way that was different than what I was taught in my training, that those factors still exist today. And the, there were really two things that happened. Number one was working with a patient that was newly diagnosed with breast cancer six months before her wedding. Ouch. And she was 26 years old, and we went through the whole process of the diagnosis, and then she came to me and she said, does it matter what I eat? And I said, I really don't know. Yeah. You know, ask your oncologist. And the oncologist said, it really doesn't matter, but if you start to lose weight during the treatment, then you know, eat donuts to keep your weight up. <laughs> wow. How long and ago was this? This was back in the late 90s. Oh, wow. In the late 90s. Hmm. And it didn't sit right with me, but I didn't say anything because I was not trained in this area. This was not my domain. Hmm. And, you know, because I was an OBGYN, we had the, you know, the connection and the trust. And she said, well, I'm not going to let you off easy. I want to know what you think. And so I, you know, had her see a nutritionist that I heard about. The nutritionist came back and said, well, you know, don't eat any sugar. And I had said I never heard about that, and I went to the library to find out. And back then, there was no internet, so right. I went to a medical librarian. I came back three days later, and she said, you know, I didn't know what references to give you because there were over 8,000 articles on sugar and cancer. Wow. Wow. And right then and there, I had this <clears throat> visceral reaction, and I was angry. And I was like, how could I? I mean, I was a, you know, a good Jewish doctor. I, you know, went to Mount Sinai for medical school, Albert Einstein. I did well. And how did I miss this? Right. How did I miss this? So, you know, it was obvious that it was never taught. And I was angry and I realized that I didn't learn anything. And then essentially at the same time, I had a operating room nurse that I was working very closely with and she was always scrubbed in on my cases and she was a patient of mine and I had the unfortunate uh, circumstance to diagnose stage four ovarian cancer wow. um, in her and 
everyone in healthcare back then knew what that meant. And then she said, so Joel, what do you think happens when you die? And I'm like, I don't know. And I remember this so well. I'm like, Kathy, I don't know. I said, and I probably don't want to know, which is part of the reason I went into obstetrics. And then she said sort of the exact same thing. Well, I'm not going to let you off the hook. I want to know what you think. And so we then, you know, explored meditation and, and so on. And so I became aware of another area that I knew nothing about from my training, which was mind, body, medicine and meditation hmm. and went to a course uh, led by Jim Gordon at Center for Mind, Body, Medicine in Washington, D.C. in 1997. And I learned about meditation and I took to it and, and studied it, learned it, and then actually began to teach it and ultimately went all over the world. Um, you know, I went to Macedonia on the coast of Obama in 1999 in the U.N. refugee camps teaching meditation to the Kosovar refugees. I taught wow. meditation to the New York Fire Department after 9-11, wow. um, you know, know, with that. Jim Gordon. Now, yeah, I, now I, when, you, when, you, when you say I taught meditation, and let me just preface that by telling you that I meditate for 20 minutes to a half hour and do a kundalini yoga routine every morning for the past 15 years. So, beautiful. I, you know, I'm, I, I have some experience in this world. When you say I taught meditation, just for our listeners, can you just, just not to go off on a tangent because I want to get back to this later, but can you just give us a little reference of what you mean by that? From a medical perspective, a doctor teaching meditation to people in dire need for change, where does that come from? What is the curriculum? Where is your mindset? Well, my mindset is that there is a change in our physiology when we enter a meditative state Absolutely. Or, or perform a meditative practice. So from a doctor's perspective, I can focus on the changes in blood pressure, the changes in heart rate, the changes in the immune system, and, and so on. And then from a human being perspective, I can talk about what my experience is when I practice those techniques, whether those techniques be something so simple as just breathing or looking at a candle or reciting a prayer mm -hmm. or words or mantras or doing moving meditation, awareness meditation, concentrative, there's all different types. and. The reason there's so many different types is because not everybody, it's like physical exercise. You have to find what works for you and you have to find the meditative technique or practice that works for you, right? Not everybody. I love that can. philosophy. I preach yeah, the same everybody thing. Can Absolutely. Or should, should sit, yeah. right? That's right. So, <laughs> so you, um, you can get in a very deep meditative state by doing very difficult exercise with specific breathing patterns. And it'll yeah. work just as good for somebody as opposed to sitting still and focusing on a different type of breathing pattern. Yeah. So. Fabulous. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we, you know, teach meditation to our patients. Um, in fact, I just saw a patient today and I did a 20 minute meditation with her. She um, had a, you know, a very difficult um, childhood. Um, and what and is a very 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 um strong self-critic hmm. and um so i just had her imagine you know close her eyes start breathing and just imagine herself as a little girl and i and i said what you know both what do you want to tell that little girl and what does that little girl want to tell you and you know the tears started right away hmm. and and she has a very you know debilitating physical illness and this was and she's been doing much better um since we've been working together not that i'm patting myself on the back but i'm just 
bringing that up for putting this in the context sure that this was the, this was the piece that that needed to happen now so we had we had worked on the diet we had worked on the supplements we had healed her gut you know helped her mitochondria etc cetera, etc cetera. and now this last piece was some of the messaging from her childhood uh that that needed to be addressed and 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 so on so that's how we implement that or i implement that in my in my day-to-day practice that, I mean, that's, that's unusual to have a medical doctor move into the space of so being the unusual. facilitator <laughs> but it, but it's also so fantastic because you know what i'm hearing you know behind the lines is you know you are really hitting on the factor of meditation from understanding how it changes someone's neurotransmitters and the different physical responses to their human experience and and what they're going through which then allows you to get their nutrition and all the other numbers optimal at the same time and that connection is 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 a, is a tough thing for most people in general well, definitely medicine medical doctors that we te- talk to to understand and grasp well that's very true now you 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 know sort of I, you know, I know what you're interested in, which is sort of what's this leading edge stuff. And so we've just touched, touched upon meditation and clearly people, or I would say doctors talk about meditation as sort of the antidotes to stress, right? Right. Or the, the technique we use. And, and that's because we all know what stress does to the body, right? right? In terms of... The, the simple things like blood sugar, blood pressure, difficulty sleeping, and then you can go a notch more uh, into the newer literature and say that stress actually changes your microbiome or your intestinal health, which affects the whole body, and stress actually changes you know the bacteria in your in your gut, and then we can talk about how stress causes inflammation in the body and how inflammation is one of the underlying problems with the complex chronic disease that you know we're we're facing now in our society and we'll talk about that when we talk about the kbmo and the food sensitivity testing but i think what people don't know the the leading edge thing is really about understanding the neurobiology of stress and the neurobiology of behavior change and i mentioned that because there is a direct link to stress and things that happen in the brain and our ability to in actually make the changes in our lifestyle and our behaviors that are the drivers of complex chronic disease. So our illnesses, mostly now are not infectious diseases, our illnesses are complex chronic diseases that are caused by lifestyle. So the solution therefore is lifestyle change and lifestyle change is difficult (laughs) it's difficult for all of us it's hard to change our eating patterns it's hard to change our sleeping patterns and and so on but what we do what we do a lot of here is you know really work with people where they're at and sometimes you know the most pressing thing that people come to us for is really to change their diet because they recognize how they're right i know this is exactly what you do right Right. so that's why that's why i'm bringing it up right right so so on that note you know i'd love right what on that note i'd kind of like to take a look at from you you know tell us about the value that you see because you know we all see it but from your from your mind since you're the medical director of kbmo at this point in time tell us the value of of actually doing food sensitivity testing versus like the old elimination diet kind of way of approaching things which which before you start by the way i just on this note laurie i i want to talk about before i met laurie and we started this company i had no idea as somebody who's been in the fitness and wellness world for 20 years and i deal with a lot of physicians i had never heard of the it a test that was this detailed that 
did something of this sort that would give someone like myself the type of information that I could utilize and help clients so much more with. So I was blown away by this. So please go ahead and just elaborate more on this for us. Right. So, you know, if, if we sort of rewind a little bit, here I am in the functional medicine world and I'm you know, senior faculty in the functional medicine world, and I'm well aware of the connection of, you know, gut health to all of the complex chronic diseases in our in our world. And so I've always been looking for a test for food sensitivities because the way that we look at food sensitivity without testing the way to identify foods that you're sensitive to is something called an elimination diet, where you eliminate the foods that most people are allergic to. So you're eliminating dairy, soy, gluten, eggs, and a you know sugar. long list of right. yeah sugar <laughs> and, and, and other things, and that can be very difficult for people. Yeah. The other thing that that elimination diet assumes is that you'll notice a change in symptoms. Now, the reality of the way we react to food is that you can have symptoms from foods and not really know about them for up to four days. And most of the symptoms, and you can have many reactions, in fact, most food reactions don't, per don't produce clinical symptoms. They're really like the iceberg, so the symptoms are below the surface. So the elimination diet doesn't identify those foods in any way, shape, or form. So the elimination diet is flawed, in my opinion, for those two reasons, that it's very difficult to do, and it doesn't identify those foods that go below the surface in terms of symptoms. So I've always been in search of a way to find the foods that are problematic, because we eat three times a day, and if you're eating foods that cause a problem, you need to know it, and especially with the emphasis on gut health. So I just randomly came across this test, and I said to the CEO, is it true that you're telling me that you can find the foods that produce inflammation? And he said, absolutely. I'm like, well, tell me some of the science. He goes, well, I'll start with who developed the test. This is the guy, Brent Dorval, a PhD, who developed the rapid HIV test. Hmm. So right away, the guy's got some scientific cred. Right. And then we, you know, I went into some of the literature, and I'm like, wow, this is impressive. And he's like, you know, try it in a couple of your patients. So I tried it in a couple of my patients, and they all reported feeling better when they eliminated the foods that were identified on the test. And unlike some of the other food sensitivity tests, which, you know, test 400 foods and you can end up with, you know, 80 or 90 that you need to eliminate, what we do here is test, you know, 132 foods essentially, and it's going to, you know, we're going to have a test that does 176 in a couple of months, but for now it's 132 foods or 22 if you want to just do an easy one. Uh, so. 132 foods and usually 15 or less come back positive yeah. so it's manageable ah, and i'm sure okay. you've noticed that yeah, yeah absolutely well i've yeah, encountered yeah. patients that sometimes have so many food sensitivities that they kind of wonder well what can i eat what's left that i like well and, right but right. that's it, it's that's very frustrating no because you know that that's not the majority of the time and when you see that, that's a unique and special clinical situation where you have really bad leaky gut. So, so. Dr. Joe, a quick question. So in terms of like, you know, you have the different levels of where the intolerances are, right? And, you know, obviously there's, there's the very high, there's the moderate, there's the low. So how often do you recommend as a professional to run this test in order to see if there's changes? Because the body's constantly changing, right? So do, does the intolerances change or is that more of like something that is, 
you know, more related to a overall allergy? And if and if not, what is the difference between like in like a regular peanut allergy test as opposed to a, a, a intolerance test? And how does the key BMO test differentiate that? All right, so that's like four questions. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the first question is, how is it different from peanut allergy? Right. Peanut allergy is a part of an a system in the in the immune system called IgE, immunoglobulin E. That's a system when activated that causes shortness of breath, swelling of the windpipe and the air and the airways, and people can't breathe and sometimes they die. That's not at all what we're talking about. That's why when someone has a peanut allergy, you can't have peanuts on a plane. Right. That's not this. Right. This is, that's allergy. What we're talking about is sensitivity. That arm of the immune system is IgG. This arm of the immune system is, I mean, saying that arm of the immune system is IgE. This, this arm of the immune system is IgG. And so this is not that. These, the, the foods that we identify trigger the immune system. The IgG is the largest component. And what this triggers is we make sure that it is in fact an inflammatory reaction because it blends with another system called the complement system. So when you have IgG, activated IgG and activated complement, and the complement is made by the white blood cell, the immune cell, when it is inflamed. When you have IgG plus complement, that's the only foods that we identify. Got it. And those are the foods that cause inflammation. And So those are the indicators for inflammation. That's where I was Those are the indicators. Right. Now, okay. the, the third question was, what it what's the value of a retest or when do we retest? Right. And the answer to that has to do with and is directly tied to why we did the test in the first place. So let's just say someone comes in and they've got an irritable bowel, you know, and they've got some GI symptoms, whether the biggie, you know, gas, bloating, loose stools, whatever. And we do the food sensitivity and again the first thing I do with my patients is I'm like okay not only why are you here but you know do we want to do a very narrow focus visit where we're just working on what brought you in here or do you want overall health clearly if it was up to me we'd be doing overall health in addition to the focused but it's whatever you want so let's just say that this is a very focused exam or I should say visit and and the only test we do is the food sensitivity test and they eliminate the foods and they start to feel better and then after three or four months they're feeling essentially almost all better i don't feel a need to retest then i can say okay the foods that we eliminated were the ones that caused your issues and you can reintroduce and we reintroduce slowly um you know according to our plan and we don't need to retest on the other hand, if I have someone that comes in, and this is the other end of the spectrum, with a really severe complex chronic disease, like I was just talking to somebody again, you know, with MS, mm-hmm. and and this was today, and she was like, and she's she's young, and she's 28, and she's like, I'm so thrilled because, you know, not only do I feel so much better, and her words were, but all these weird things that were unexplainable are now gone. Right, and, and so, when you're looking at MS, you're looking at autoimmunity, you're looking at inflammatory right. responses, so it's, it's right in that ballpark. Exactly. So someone like her, and this was her question, is do I need to be retested? And the answer for her is of course you do, because right. we have to stay ahead of this. Right. Right, and if we're doing the gut restoration program and uh-huh. along with and when we do that you know with with certain patients that do have autoimmune issues I always do a, a gut restoration program of and so if you're doing that and you change the integrity of the gut lining then one would think it would be of value to test again because as they become less permeable they might tolerate some different foods better yeah, so if you're treating leaky gut, that, you know, 
depending on how long the patient's had it, sometimes you can fix it in two months, sometimes four months, six months, whatever. So you need some, some sort of objective marker. And so that's what this test does. So KBMO diagnosis leaky gut in, you know, one of three ways. Um, one is an optional add-on where we test uh, zonulin, which is a protein uh, that's made by the intestine that's increased in, uh, in leaky gut. And the second thing is by looking at the number of foods that come up as sensitive. So we usually say, you know, nine or ten. And then the third thing is if we see a candida, a positive candida result. That's also a positive. So, so do we need to run the zonulin, or do we just should we just go off the foods, perhaps, and look for those signs? Or that well, I think that's between you know you and the patient. I think from my perspective, one of the barriers to zonulin is that the assay hasn't been great, and that it's been uh, something that pretty much had to be drawn be run through a blood draw as opposed to the finger stick that comes with the KBMO testing. Now, you may or may not know the name Alessio Fasano. Alessio Fasano is a uh, doctor at Harvard. He uh, is a mass general, and he is the one that first described the zonulin molecule. Right. And so, Dr. Fasano, um, I you know, basically said to the CEO of KBMO, we have to work with Dr. Fasano. I want, you know, the next generation's onulin test. And so that has in fact happened. And so now Dr. Fasano is on our team and has just, you know, actually just created the next generation's onulin test. No one else has that. We'll have it out in a month or two. That's awesome. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's and great it's gonna news. Be, and it's going to be on a finger stick. So there's there's really no barrier to it. It's not going to be that much more expensive. And it's better to have more data points so that you can both figure out what's going on and at the same point track your progress. Awesome. Yeah. How about, um, you know, just in your practice in, in terms of working with you know, prenatal and perinatal, you know, patients. Um, what's the value of the FIT test? What's been your experience with that? Well, you know, I'm a, a big believer in preconception health and how optimal preconception health leads to increased pregnancy rates, increased, um, you know, healthy pregnancy, so it decreases pregnancy complications and then is very much involved with almost all women's health issues uh, from, you know, endometriosis, fibroids, and breast cancer. So as an OBGYN, there's lots of reasons to love this test. And, you know, there's data on leaky gut and fertility. There's data on leaky gut and miscarriage. There's data on leaky gut and fertility. And there's data on leaky gut and, you know, pregnancy complications like preeclampsia and preterm labor. And we know that food sensitivities and leaky gut are interrelated. So people that have food sensitivities have leaky gut. People that have leaky gut have food sensitivity. So it's, you know, a no-brainer. So when someone comes in in the ultra, ultra beginning stages and says, I'm thinking of getting pregnant in three to six months, I'm like, great. So I'm going to make you healthy. I'm going to reduce oxidative stress. I'm going to reduce inflammation. And one of the ways I'm going to reduce inflammation is by identifying the, food, identifying the foods that cause inflammation and removing them. So from a deep spiritual man you're catching it in the old way beginning stages at the ultimate aspect of preventative health care before the child is even born or conceived or conceived <laughs> i should say right so so right so so putting all of that together which which i by the way i i love your pattern of thought and philosophy it, it, it really is brilliant um so in in, in catching the mother um at a at at that stage and, and doing all of those things where are your thoughts with where the father should be and and the connection between you know the actual 
event and, 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 and what goes on once you have the fetus and, and, and what kind of, is there, is there data that shows that by doing this kind of preventative care on the mother or the father that there is any kind of change within the pregnancy, during the pregnancy, post-pregnancy, delivery? You know, so... And I know that's without, a tough question, without, but... Well, without knowing it, you know, you asked a question that's also in a real area of interest and expertise of mine. So there's an association called the Association for Pre- and Perinatal Psychology and Health, mm -hmm. which is really about the role of consciousness yeah. in, in pregnancy and birth and early childhood. And, you know, I've been on their board of directors. I'm currently their medical director. So I am very much interested in and aware of the role of consciousness in the prenatal experience. And so when you mentioned bringing in the husband, you bring in the husband or partner um, as, as early as preconception. And this, you know, has to do with setting the intention of, you know, achieving a pregnancy, right, yeah. of, of creating life. And we know that this makes a difference. You know, I gave a talk at the UN on, you know, how are there any prenatal contributions that can be made to reduce violence in the world? Yeah, you know, exactly and, right. That's great. And, and, it's, and, it, and it's, it's a funny story because they're planning this big thing, you know, the international conference, you know, on women and the topic was reducing violence against women. And someone said, well, is there anything that we can do, you know, during pregnancy? And the answer was, I have no idea, but let's ask this guy, Dr. Joe Live. <laughs> <laughs> and then I got this call and I'm like, of course there's stuff you can do. Right. And so, you know, I went through this rather, you know, extensive scientific explanation of what can be done to reduce violent behavior, both in children, um, adolescents, and adults. And a lot of that has to do with women feeling safe, because when women don't feel safe, that changes their stress hormones, which affects the baby, and affects how the baby is wired and reacts to stress. So, you know, that's, that's something that's so important, but I don't want to stray here. Um, but to answer the question, is that an involved uh, partner is incredible. And, you know, it doesn't, it's not that it has to be this old dynamic of it's got to be a, you know, a husband. It doesn't matter. Right. Just any partner um, that's involved in, in creating a family. Well, I think... And, and that's just critically important. I think in your first sentence, you hit the word on the head, intention, right? So, right. you know, <laughs> that that's the stem of it all. So the partner or whatever is whatever it is, but the intention, I think, and, right. and, and, and the previous psychology and, and where that person's mental and spiritual and physical makeup is preconceived is, I think, I agree with you. I think that's the seed. That's where everything starts. And if you can yes. catch that there with the work you're doing, I didn't even know about this. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, intent, you know, intentionality is is so powerful it's what so other powerful. personal development work have you done i'm just curious there's language is very telling yeah so my personal work really uh started with so i really had zero until you know 1997 um and uh you know i was 37 at the time and uh that's when I went to Jim Gordon Center for Mind Body Medicine, meditated for the first time in a group setting, and you know that blew my mind. And after that, um, basically did you know continued learning that stuff, working with Jim Gordon, and then worked with a 
meditation teacher in Stanford, Connecticut. Her name was Tulia Kitty, and she was the one that was in charge of mind-body groups for Bernie Siegel. Oh, okay. So um, I worked with her um, for many, many years, and she ran groups out of our, our office, and, you know, I sort of then became interested in personal growth, uh, spiritual development, and then about 15 years ago, um, went on my first trip to India, um, because as I went deeper and deeper into these meditative techniques, took yoga, yogic philosophy, Eastern philosophy, wanted to go to India, and now I go and uh, I go to India once or twice a year, and for two main reasons. Number one is I do a lot of charity work, so I work with a charity called Madurai Charitable Trust, and we've, you know, brought, it's an aged care home, it's a medical clinic slash hospital with rural health care, it's a hospice, we give yeah. computers to schools and teach girls sewing so I do a lot of service work because that's very important to me wow. and then I plug in and go to an ashram and uh, get the energy to do the service work <laughs> right exactly exactly got it um, but but you know those go hand in hand in hand absolutely so, right um, that's really um, what my path has been so on another note you know and I was listening to another podcast you did and um, you talked about ethical genetics and in a day and age when everybody's you know interested in genetics and I know just from looking at my own 23andMe you know you could get reactive to different things that you see in your genome the whole notion of the epigenetic effects but also you know, how to look at our genetics in context. And so I'd love you to talk into that space a little bit. So this is, this is so important. And, you know, this is one of the reasons I'm on the scientific advisory board for this genetic testing company called Toolbox Genomics, because I really believe that the message behind genetic testing has to be delivered to doctors, to, to educated consumers in the right way. So there are some common things that we know um, now that we have technology, which is that we can figure out people's genes. We can now figure out the whole human genome, the whole genetic code we could figure out. And we thought when we figured that out that there would be no more disease. Right? That's why we invested all of that money to analyze the whole human genetic code. And unfortunately, um, that hasn't done anything about that. And the reason for that is because it's not just about genes. I mean, it's true there are some you know, genetic diseases that it doesn't matter what the environment is. But for the vast, vast, vast majority of cases, it's not about the gene. It's the environment. When we use the term environment or epigenetics, it's how you live your life. And how you live your life is more important than what your genes are. So that's the most important message. And then you might say to me, well, if that's the case, then why do I even need to know my genes? And the reason you need to know your genes is because your genes can explain or identify things that you're predisposed to. So if you're predisposed to diabetes, for example, you can't eat the same way someone that's not predisposed to diabetes can eat. Which then becomes your environment. Right. Correct. So you can prevent the diabetes from happening, you just have to work harder. And right, and so, then we even look at, um, you know, you look at the MTHFR gene or other genes that govern biochemical right, pathways, any, and that's concrete, anything, you can act on that. Anything, you know, now there's, you know, a lot of concern about, you know, cognitive function, cognitive decline, Alzheimer's prevention, um, 
and and we can say, okay, you have these genes we can test, you know, that may predispose you to Alzheimer's, but that's not your destiny, right? right. That's the tagline. Your genes are not your destiny. So right. there are things you can do, right? So that's why genetic testing done in the right way is so crucial, so critical, and so important. I just want to really touch up on this with you quick because when my partner, Dr. Benalevi, and I started Helix and Gene, our company, we started as a genomics company, Helix and Gene. And right. we, we created our own in-house wellness genomic breakdown and our own algorithm. And, you know, we take a look at, you know, the macronutrient breakdown. We also take a look and see, you know, where somebody falls in terms of, you know, exercise percentage. We look at micronutrient breakdown. We look at different categories and different things. And one of the things we realized real quick was, wow, this is 10% of the equation. <laughs> we need to right. take this as information, add things like KBMO test to it, create an environment and a system within a coaching program that puts it under one roof and now taught to you by a medical professional can really tell you a lot well, that's about the your body. That's the secret sauce, right? Combining it the exact way you are. Yeah, yeah. I and really commend you. Thank you, and 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 that's an honor and a compliment coming from you. And I love your thought process behind the genes because that was exactly ours. <laughs> it was. It's like like you said, it's not your destiny, but it does give you some outline as to what what there is, what you're predisposed to, and what I tell people, and I want to take your take, I want to get your take on this is. You know, what we know about genes so far as a species and what we've learned so far, it is very little bit, you know, I mean, they're, they're, I agree. so, totally so, agree. but we do have to start somewhere. So some people ask me, well, how strong is the science behind it? And I, and my response to them is it's as strong as it exists today with the information that we have. <laughs> it's, you know, we need more information, but we have to continue doing this testing. We have to continue to get more data. We have to continue to mine the human gen genome more and more to figure out you know what really these indicators are and if there are better ways that we can tackle this but also and and you know you can probably speak to this a little better than I can but when we look at someone's blood test after moving through you know a whole foods protocol like ours you know where people are switching to organic grass-fed free-range and all of that good stuff we can then look at some of the genetic information. We can look at perhaps some of their, uh, you know, the, the, the family tree and what other people have suffered with in terms of diseases. And that, that's the beauty of being, you know, in functional medicine is, is bringing all of that together. But the blood test then tells us functionally what's happening because of the changes that we're making based on all that information exactly exactly and and you know i don't know how much there is to learn about the genome yet that's left but what what is left to learn is what turns on and off different genes and what what really does change that gene expression and that's you know what we are that's the goal to learn. Yeah. And that's what's really, really exciting. I know Sam wanted to speak to you about women's health and spine health and all the kinds of changes since his, you know, interest and passion is exercise. So Sam, why don't you go? I just yeah, want to I, remind I, you. I, I really wanted to talk touch base with you a little bit on this and you know, one of the things that really fascinates me is the pregnancy process, right? And and, and what happens pre during and post right and mm -hmm. and and given that i'm into spirituality and understanding chakras and being able to within our training just to give you a little background dr joel is that you know i look at everybody's spine and i train our entire staff to look at the spine and we look at the three stabilizing muscles the rhomboids the transverse abdominis and the glutes that hold the spine together we teach the individual how to turn each one on individually and then simultaneously. And then we work our way out. 
and then we look at the central nervous system we understand how the vagus nerve is turned on through different motions and through different breath and put that into exercise and we start our corrective exercise training there right so just so you have a little background about what that's, our that's great that's great but so so in in women that are pregnant let's let's start there right because now the belly is getting bigger the breasts are growing and there's a diff completely different kind of tension and pressure not even getting into the hormonal response of what that does to the spine because that's a different question but just just the physical aspect of how that pulls the body forward and out of line where is your take on one spine health during pregnancy and what can be done there from a medical standpoint I don't I don't know if you have any or thought about it or I'm sure you have but I, I'm just curious to kind of get your get your thought pattern on this on this subject a little bit well what I would say is you know I know what I know I know what I know well and I know what I know not so well so I am not an expert here on the spine um, but what I will tell you is that the importance of proper posture, proper alignment before pregnancy is really important. And then it's very important to wear, for women when they're pregnant to have the proper footwear. And nothing's worse during pregnancy than footwear that you know, the high heels, et cetera, that further distort the spine. And as the center of gravity changes, it's important to, you know, make sure, number one, you don't have, you know, pain or discomfort, in which case you do have to always get that evaluated. And number two, do basic yoga stretchers, do exercises, that help with alignment hmm. and that then enhances if we're moving then from the, the spine um, from looking at the spine as just a you know a series of, of bones that house the spinal cord but we look at it as an energetic conduit um, for the, the flow of either prana or nadi depending on right on what system you're you're right. uh thinking of right. you know that's really important that's why in chinese medicine they have something called the microcosmic orbit right yeah. where the energy comes up from that root chakra that first chakra going up through the spine um the base of the spine into the head and then down in the front of the body yep. and it's you know I always would have my patients to when they're doing their meditation when they're pregnant to actually you know imagine that flow of energy because that helps develop that energy circuitry in the fetus while it's in the womb and the fetus has its own microcosmic orbit at the same time and to you know imagine that Wow. So I hope that answers your question. I, I, absolutely, and and that's it's fascinating, and and I love hearing a medical MD doctor who is into functional medicine, but is it has such a deep spiritual rooted background and interest, and you know I I would say there is nothing more forefront than working on the consciousness of a couple preconceived to pregnancy i mean that's as preventative and as base as it gets and you know that's if there's one thing i took away from our conversation today that really hit me is that and yeah you know yeah. And, and 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 that is just fascinating to me and something that i'm going to now deeply research and get into a little bit more because it's very interesting to me um and there's there's just so you know um there's a a woman by the name of Laura Uplinger, who lives in Sao Paulo, Brazil, mm -hmm. who's, who's done a lot of work on this, and we've done work together, and she's created a booklet, and I, you know, did some of the editing, but it's primarily her 
booklet, it's, you know, the 10 golden rules about what to think about preconception, etc., and and what to do during pregnancy. And it's a small little booklet. Um, I'm sure I could, you know, not I'm sure I can. I can share, you know, that with you electronically. You can send oh, it to I any of your that. listeners. That, but, would, that but would be that's fantastic. That's something that we've actually um, gotten the government of Greece to give it to every couple when they're married. Wow. wow. They get this booklet. Um, so that's how we're affecting change worldwide um, in this particular area. That's really well, beautiful. Well, Dr. Evans, this has been a phenomenal interview and, and, and short but sweet. And, and, and I know that you're a very busy man and have a lot to get to. And before, you know, we end this and I let you go, I just want to just, you know, have our audience, if they're looking to find you, if, if they want to come to your practice or, you know, or, or any information that they want on you and your practice and anything where would they go and and how would they find you yeah so the funny thing is is i'm smiling because i'm doing so many things i don't have time to do all the social media stuff that i should be doing but the <laughs> the, the practice website is we're called the center for functional medicine and the website is the cffm.com so the charlie frank frank mary.com and uh, that's a lot of the information um, about me and I'm practicing in Stanford, Connecticut, and would love to see anybody that wants to see me. Can you do, can you do um, virtual um, care? Yes, yes, we okay. can. Perfect. We do virtual as well. Ideally, um, you know, patients need to come in first because uh, that in-person meeting right. um, initially is great, but I've got patients all over the world um, that uh, that I do virtual uh, initial offices visits as well. Wow. I am licensed in California, um, so I can see California patients virtually the first time as well. I can for sure tell you that I will be having my wife reach out to you to start coming to you from now on. That's definitely a, a, a positive. But thank you again so much. And I, okay. I, 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 and and just so everybody yeah. knows, this is the center I use for my care. <laughs> yes. No. Yeah, that's right. I, oh, by the way, very funny. I, I I live in North Shore, Long Island, in a town, Seacliff, and uh, and I'm. I was talking to a neighbor, she lives a couple of houses away from me, and she's a naturopath, and we were talking about the business, and we were talking about the KBMO, and she goes, oh, I go to a gentleman in Stanford for my OBGYN. I'm like, oh, really, who is this? And she's oh, like, Dr. Funny. Joel Evans. And I'm like, well, it just happens that we're going to be interviewing him next week on our show. So it's just a small world. Um, but but as, as a testament to how good you are, people from my town, town here in North Shore, Long Island, drive over the bridge to see you. And, and that tells me yes. a lot. So <clears throat> on that note, thank you so much for thank taking you. the time. Thank you so, so very and much. And I'd be okay. looking forward to definitely having you back on this show for maybe just a spiritual debate. I think that would be more okay. than fun. <laughs> love to, love to, love to. That's a passion of mine. All right. Thank you, Dr. Okay. Evans. Pleasure. Take care. Take Bye -bye. care. Okay. Bye -bye. That was Dr. Joel Evans we interviewed. He is the medical director for the KBMO test that we use here at Helix and Gene. Um, please go to our iPodcast, Helix and Gene, uh, rate the episode, listen to it, go to our website, www.helixandgene.com. If you want to contact us, you can email myself or Lori at sam at helixandgene.com or Lori at helixandgene.com about any questions. We'd be more than happy to answer them. And please check out our social media, Helix and Gene at Instagram. So on that note, thank you and have a wonderful, wonderful day. Thank you, everyone. It was such a pleasure to do this podcast and to bring this information to you.